Morning. We are in the fifth message of this series titled Simply Christian. And uh, what is this series about? Let me just restate it in a few seconds, which is we're taking, it's not simple Christian, like, you know, the real basic uh, ideas. It's simply as an essential. And the idea is to try to look past some of the misconceptions that are out there about the Christian faith. They might say the street theology that not only people out there, you know, in the, in the world have, but a lot of us have, and has become part of our faith. And because of that, we're actually missing, you know, it's kind of hidden in plain sight, what actually is the message of the Christian faith. So that's what we've been doing for a number of weeks. That's what this series is about. I've heard a pastor more than one say, and this will be apropos to this message this morning, that the Christian life doesn't ask too little of us, it actually asks too much of us. That is to say, if, if once you and I um, understand the gospel, right? Once we um, really appreciate what it is that God has done for us, that's what the gospel is, it's not what we do for God, it's what he has done for us. The appropriate response to the gospel, if the love of God has really taken hold in your life, right? And that's not a switch uh, that's flipped. It's not a one-moment experience. It's a, it's a lifetime. But if the love of God has truly taken hold of your life, I mean, grabbed hold of you, like falling in love, but more than that, okay? If the love of God has taken hold of your life, then the appropriate response is not that we give back God, you know, 10% of our life, but we give him all of our lives, okay? That's really what the Bible says, and you'll see it particularly in this passage this morning in a message titled, Life as Calling. Romans chapter 12, you have a copy of the Bible in your hand, in your lap, however you access the scriptures. Please open to Romans 12, follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. Life as Calling. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, the Apostle Paul, my subject isn't going to be the whole book of Romans here this morning, but just as a way to, uh, to uh, make 
um, throw this passage in sharp relief. What are we talking about? In the book of Romans, he takes this very sharp turn, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in an automobile, um, you know, where someone's just, you know, going really fast, you know, or, or, or maybe a little too fast, and takes a really sharp turn, you know, whether it's to avoid something, Maybe that's a good time to do it, or just because you're a little reckless, but you're in that car, and all of a sudden, you've got to hold on. If someone's taking you by surprise, you grab onto something, and you take this sharp turn just holding on until the, 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 the thing is corrected, the momentum is corrected, and you're on your way. In a manner of speaking, that's what's happening here theologically. The Apostle Paul has just spent 11 chapters, and I'm not going into it, but just to set us up here, 11 chapters unpacking the great truths, unpacking the profound realities that are at the heart of the gospel message. I mean, this is, it was, you know, many would say that this is the most um, uh, important book in all of the Bible, many would say, that is the book of Romans. The most, the most um, comprehensive teaching on the gospel of Jesus Christ by one of the great authors of Scripture, that is the Apostle Paul. And he's unpacking it, and he takes 11 chapters and, and takes out this beautiful treasure practically and theologically and emotionally. He says, what is the gospel message, right? Summed up in so many great verses, those of us who are familiar with the book of Romans. While we were yet sinners, just one, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, that's the gospel's way of saying, while you didn't care about what God had to say, when you were indifferent to the things of God, when you thumbed your nose at the things of God, when you were just maybe just had no interest, no knowledge, you know, doing your own thing. All, we like sheep have gone astray kind of thing. God sent Jesus Christ nevertheless to die for your sins. Okay, that's what the gospel is. And he unpacks it, but when he gets done with that, and that's why the word therefore it's like the biggest therefore in the New Testament to say, now that I've done that sharp turn, what does all this mean for your life, right? And how might it change or should it change the direction of your life? And to do that, he's going to use the language of sacrifice, okay? So very thoughtful, very, um, you know, Paul's a very smart person. I'm trying to just put this in context for you. He uses the language of sacrifice, okay, in this passage. But keep this in mind, and this would have been clear in the first 11 chapters, but many of you know this, okay, that Jesus Christ, the idea of sacrifice changed radically because of the becoming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought an end to the thousand-year-old practice of animal sacrifice. For roughly a thousand years, when people were going to church, that is the Jewish people, the dominant religion, even the non-Jewish people, if you look at the religions of the ancient Near East, they gave sacrifices too. In that sense, the Jewish people were not unique. But when people came to church, for as long as it was going on, from the time of the tabernacle to the temple, all the way until the New Testament, people wouldn't come to church with just mom and dad and kids. They'd be bringing their ram. They'd be bringing their turtle dove. They would be bringing their goat. They would be bringing a sacrifice. And at the centerpiece of the old church, or the Jewish church, was not a pulpit, wasn't a bunch of instruments. It was an altar. And you came 
with a sacrificial animal. And that was burned in the consciousness, burned in the, in the imagination of the people of God for a thousand years. In fact, longer than that. Remember Cain and Abel? That goes way back. Okay? The idea of sacrifice. But after a thousand years of capturing the imagination, of associating sacrifice with worship, well then, then comes the Son of God, born one out of due time, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In a sacrificial system that would cover sin, because you'd have to come back the next week and offer a sacrifice, and the next week and offer a sacrifice, and this went on for the whole length of your natural life. He says, now there is no more reason for sacrifice. The whole rest of the New Testament says. Jesus was the be all, end all. He was the Lamb of God who brings the sacrificial system to an end. But... Paul is saying, to manage that anxiety, right? Because one day they went to the church, all the early church was Jewish, and after Jesus rose from the dead, it was like, where do we go now? What do we do now? Because the sacrificial system had come, and he says, listen, there is still a sacrifice, Paul says. And he uses the language of sacrifice. But it is not the sacrifice of an animal that you give multiple times in the course of the week. It is the sacrifice of your life, a living sacrifice that you give, not just on church on Sunday or a temple on Saturday, but that you give on the altar of your everyday life, where you work, where you live, where you hang out, where you parent your kids, or where you go to school. Your life is the sacrifice. Your, where you live your life is the altar. Right? That's what Paul is saying. My first point, his first point. Your life is your offering, right? He uses these many words in here. To offer, holy and pleasing, true and proper. These are buzzwords if you happen to know your Old Testament. If you happen to have been an Old Testament worshiper. He's using all the language to say, listen, guys, things have changed. But sacrifice still is at the center of worship. But instead of an animal that's killed, right? He's being deliberately, you might say, um, paradoxical. It's a living sacrifice. It is your life. But here's the important thing to keep in mind. The sacrifice is not given, your life, my life, your service, that's where this passage ends, in order to gain God's favor. Many people think that. They think this is what the Christian, this is what the gospel is. Right? It's the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, it's the teachings of Jesus. I have to live those things out. And as I offer my, as I, you know, as I tell the truth, and as I honor my relationships, as I'm faithful in my marriage, as I'm good with my money, as I help the poor people and homeless people, and, and as I live life as God outlined it, then in response, God gives me hope and salvation and eternal life. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The sacrifices aren't given to gain God's favor. This sacrifice, the sacrifices are given in response to God's favor. I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen carefully. By the mercies of God, that is because of what God has done for you, has the love of God captured your imagination? Because he loved you when you didn't love him back. Because he forgave you of your sins, all of them. Because he's given you a whole new way of life. In response to the sacrifices... I'm calling you to a particular way of life. That's very, very important. One verse to sum up much of the book of Romans, Romans 9, 16. 
It does not therefore, he's talking about salvation, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Let me tell you something. It's not because of my ambition. Some of us think that's what it is, right? We're a little bit better than other people. Or we try. But Paul is saying it does not depend on human, listen, it does not depend on human effort. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 4. And God made us alive. Almost like he's taking the, you know, the paddles and boom. That, that's what it means to become a Christian. That's what the Bible says, okay? He made, it's not a, but it's God's mercy. That's why I'm a Christian. But let me say something quickly about this. I told you simply Christian is not simple. I want to make you think in this series of messages, and and, and I'm going to do it just for a minute, if I can, about the sacrificial system. Because Paul's bringing it up, not me. He's the one that's bringing to mind the sacrificial system, to saying it's over in the way it was done, but sacrifice is still at the heart of worship. And it's not dead animals that are transactional. It's the living, breathing life that you live in the classroom, in the office, at the doctor's office, in your neighborhood, in raising your kids, in being a child, in being a student, in how you do your everyday life. That is how you live out the Christian life. That's where worship and sacrifice come together. But let me say something about even the Old Testament sacrifices. The book of all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, very elaborate. It's very elaborate. It's basically outlined in one Old Testament book. It's called the book of Leviticus. Now raise your hand if you've ever even heard of the book of Leviticus. Bob, you gonna raise your hand over there? Okay, yeah. Um, And now keep it up if you've actually read the book of Leviticus. Now, here's why we don't read it. Because we say to ourselves, that was then. Rob, you just got done saying we don't have an altar here where we burn sacrifices. The past is the past. We don't need it anymore. Well, yes and no. Because the truth that I think we're missing is this. The book of Leviticus, stay with me, Okay, this is, I want to get to the point as quick as I can. The book of Leviticus, which is 27 chapters of how to sacrifice animals, came after the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus tells the story of the deliverance of the people of God. They were slaves in Egypt. God didn't say, God didn't give them the Ten Commandments and say, when you, fill out the ten, when you fulfill the Ten Commandments, then I'm going to deliver you. It's the opposite. He said, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt the paddles, right? I'm going to bring you out. I'm just going to grab you and I'm going to bring you through the Red Sea. Then I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. And see, the book of Leviticus did not come before the deliverance. Egypt, or you might say the Exodus, represents God's grace. It came after, in the, in the book of Leviticus, all these elaborate sacrifices, 27 chapters, there are five basic offerings, and they're, off, and, they're, and they're mentioned in the first five chapters. This is how you worship as a Jewish person with sacrificial system. There are five basic offerings. The first three of them, this is the whole worship system of Israel for a thousand years. The first three of them are about gratitude. They're not even about, the, four, the fourth and the fifth are about the sin offering and the trespass offering. You know what the first three categories, and they are the largest categories, the most often given sacrifice, the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the fellowship offering. 
And the purpose of those offerings was not to gain favor. It was not even for atonement. The purpose of those offerings was for fellowship and gratitude to God. Sometimes I look at those, the meal offering, if you don't know what the Bible teaches, and you say, well, the reason Israel, like the pagan nations, brought these offerings with all the great meal that they had, the best grain and the fruit, and they said, here's the meal offering, is because God, they're basically trying to appease the gods. The gods are angry, and we got to make them happy, and so we give them our best meal, because that's what the nations around them did. But you know what Psalm 50 says in many other places in response to that very stinky thinking? God says this. It's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. He says, would I come, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you. Psalm 50. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't understand. The purpose of the meal offering, the purpose of the fellowship offering was not that you would appease me. It's so that you and I, it's what we're going to do when we share communion in a few minutes. It's so that you and I, as my delivered son and daughter, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. Come and get close to me. It's so that you can, in a manner of speaking, represent fellowship and communion with the Almighty God. That's what it was for. But Paul is being, let's say, deliberately paradoxical in these, talking about a living sacrifice for two reasons, okay? Two reasons. There still is a sacrifice. But he's calling it something that's never been talked about in the history of the Jewish experience, which is a living sacrifice. But let me tell you something that's, you would get this if we think it out. What is, what is, what is um, paradoxical about a living sacrifice? That is, it's my life, how I live my life in response to God's love in the course of my everyday experience. My altar, I don't have to come to Jerusalem. I don't have to come to Browncroft in that manner for that purpose. I'm gonna, I, I, I give my offering on the altar of my everyday life. Okay, But here's the interesting thing about the idea, the metaphor, the concept of a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice tends to crawl off the altar. Okay? That's the problem. And how do I apply this? Well, here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, if the love of God really captures your imagination, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. That's a Bible way of saying, if you really understood how much God loves you, if it's penetrated down to the deepest part of your mind and your heart and your soul, where you've been forgiven when you don't deserve it, where he loves you, he's made you his son, he's made you his daughter, when that gets a hold of your life, you are going to want to put your life on the altar. That is to say, it's a way of saying, I'm going I'm to live my life for his purposes, not my own right and what it means to give is, is what it means to be a living sacrifice it means you and i come to a place where we put our own vision for our life our own control for our life we put it to death right that's what it means it means i god i i'm going to come to a place and realize that i you are wiser than i am you are a better manager of my life than i am so my to put my life on the altar means i'm going to put to death my own vision for my life i'm going to put to death the the high control i'm going to have on my life i'm going to say every morning i think you're a better manager of my life than mine and i'm going to stay there okay that's what it means that your life is an offering. It's not just about serving, but it's a constant battle in your mind and in your heart not to cede back control of your life, which is why the heart of this passage talks about the mind. Your life is your offering. Second, you have to think out your faith. That's what he's really saying here. 
You have to think out your faith, right? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's an appeal made at the beginning, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, give your body. Be a living sacrifice. Go into the world out of gratitude. And then at the end, he, he gets specific. Get in the game, whether, you're, whether your gift is prophesying, serving, giving, leading, mercy, whatever it is, get in the game. But between the appeal and the practical advice, you see, is the question of where the mind, the role of the mind in Christian discipleship. Four or five times in two verses, he uses the Greek word think. He's not doing it um, for a, a, a light purpose. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by your mind, right? I have a friend of mine just uh, uh, published a book and just came out a couple weeks ago, and he calls me, you know, kind of at the last minute. I mean, not maybe a month or so ago. He says, will you write a review of this book? I said, dude, I didn't know you were writing a book. A friend of mine from Texas. And I said, I'm honored. I said, what's the title? What, tell me about it. What's the title? He said, the title is I'm Not Hitler. <laughs> and I said, wow. I thought, I said, is it, um, is, this, is this a done deal? I mean, are you... Uh, like, is this like a, a you know, you, 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 it's a rough draft or, no, it's done. Is, is, you know, it's ready to print. Yeah, it's already ready to print, you know, and uh, it's already printed. He wanted me to write an after review, not a review in the book. And I said, that's it, done title, right? That's I'm not Hitler. And um, I said, well, you must not be going for the coffee table market, I guess, you know. <laughs> now, the book is, it's a very provocative title because it's about, the Christian faith and talking to people, and this was his clever way. A lot of people say, I'm not that bad, okay? And it's a rough book. It's reflective of his own story and testimony. It's got some salty language in it. But I'll tell you why I admire the book. I did read it. Because what it really is, is a guy, lost man who became a Christian, and says, there's a lot of questions that I have and that my friends have. I, I didn't grow up as a Christian, about the Christian faith. Does it hold water here? Does it hold water there? How, what does it mean to live this way? What does it mean to really be a Christian in this area of my life? And what he's trying to do in the book is with some intellectual integrity say, I've been thinking about it, I've been studying this, and this is what I think, okay? This is what the Bible's calling us to do. But I think a lot of us, honestly, we don't do that. We think that somebody else's job is to do that. See, it's, many of us are not progressing in the Christian life if we really could measure it. We're not really experiencing the transformation that it talks about because we're trusting other people to do the hard work for us, right? Pastor, that's your job to come up with the sermon, and I, I'm, I love coming up with the sermons, and I'm happy to do that. And I can do that for you, and other teachers can do some things for you. But let me tell you what I can't not do for you ever, and neither can any other pastor. I can't give you joy in your life. I can't give you power in your life, right? And what Paul is saying is, listen, if you want to live a transformed life, you have to think out your faith, right? And many of us aren't really thinking out our faith. We're basically looking for someone else to do that for us. We're intellectually and, and lazy, and that's why we're not, we're still going to go to heaven when we die if you're a Christian, but that's why you're not experiencing the kinds of things, the kind of transformation that you want to experience, okay? And you're really drifting along in your Christian life, conforming to the patterns of this world, 
You're sort of a Christian, you know, that doesn't act like one or feel like one instead of experiencing a transformation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. Similar conversation, but think about your life. Maybe it fits, shoe fits, maybe not. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you. He's talking about the gospel because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elemental truths of God's word all over again. He's not saying you're not a Christian. He's saying you're off the path. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil, right? He's saying, listen, you have to work out your faith. The Christian faith, listen, the sac- along with the sacrificial system of the animals going away, let me tell you what else mostly went away. The actual statutes and the laws of the Old Testament, there's over 600 of them because Jesus Christ fulfilled them. But see, in the Old Covenant, two things were partly true. I could come to church with my wife, my kids, my friends, and I could be as angry as all get out, and then I give my sacrifice, alive, dead, done, and I go home, right, until my next time. But see, not in the New Covenant. And I can also decide, well, I got a problem with my neighbor. I got a problem. Do you ever wonder why the Old Testament is so highly prescribed? If you do this, if you do that, if you walk over the neighbor's fence, if, you, if there's mold in your house, if you read these books, which you should. But the point is, why so highly prescriptive? Because they were thinking out in the Old Covenant all the different ways in which it means to live in relationship with God, but not in the New Covenant. This is the beauty, this amazing thing about Christianity. God said, listen, Jesus fulfilled all the moral obligations of the law, And what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It might be something a little bit different for you than it is for you relative to your job and to your family challenges and to how you manage your money because money might be a real issue for you and and sex might be a real issue for you and whatever the case may be. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take the word of the God and the spirit of God and ink out the implications of the Christian faith you got to work it out, right? And quit being such a baby and, a, and sort of a spiritual infant and expect other people to do your work for you. This is the beauty. God says, listen, it's a kingdom of priests. We're all in the ministry. We all have access to the spirit of God and the word of God, but you got to do the work, right? you got to do the work. What happened, the link between the great appeal of the mercies of God and getting in the game is the Christian mind. How are you doing? How am I doing, right? There's a world of... The, 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 the key to Christian discipleship, it's not ritual. It's discernment, right? It's discernment. Be not conformed to this world, but be renewed by... the renewing of your mind couple things to think about. Throw these statements up, guys. just want to ask yourself, how do you know whether or not, Pastor, I'm experiencing true transformation in my Christian walk? Because that's, that's the metaphor. That's the concept, I should say. It's either tra- See, a lot of us are Christians. We're not really experiencing transformation. We're being conformed to the image. We might conform to the image of this world. That, could mean, that doesn't mean you're a murderer or you're a drug addict. It means I go to church on Sunday. 
It means I'm in a Bible study. It could mean a lot of things, right? Conform to the pattern of this world, but are you experiencing transformation? Are you letting the word of God get down there? Are you chewing on it? Are you letting it chew on you? Are you beginning to say, listen, I don't really know yet what the implications of the gospel are for being a parent. I don't know yet what the implications are for being a husband or being a wife. I don't know the full implications of dealing with my money, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to open my life to the spirit of God and the word of God, and I'm going to figure that out. This is the beauty of the, of the scriptures, right? To be spirit-led, if we can use those terms. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? First statement. How do I know if I'm being transformed or if I'm just walking uh, in lockstep with the world with a Christian set of clothes on? You care more about what others think than what God thinks, okay? Answer the question for yourself. This could be across the board. But if you care more about what other people think, whether it's about the way you live, where you, the kind of car you drive, you know, you're, why you're here this morning, you know, I mean, if that animates you and takes more energy for you, some of you would say, I don't even know what God thinks to know whether or not I care what he thinks. You don't even know what he thinks, okay? Second, are you generally judgmental towards others? Why are people judgmental? I'm judgmental at times, but why are we, why do, why, why are we judgmental? Well, because we're always, it's always about us, right? I'm, I'm, I'm using a lot of my energies. You're using a lot of your energies just trying to self-justify yourself, right? And so I do that partly by, by feeling um, more superior to others. At the same time, I'm also judging myself. Why do I do that? Well, because I'm being conformed to this world, and this world's all about judgment and performance and who's got one up on someone else, as opposed to being transformed. And that's why he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but you could also add, and do not think of yourself more lower than you ought. All of us, to some degree, are part of one of two distortions of being a Christian. Our pride keeps us from transformation. We actually think we can get off the altar and run our own lives, run our own finances, run our own marriage, right? We, 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 our pride gets in the way, or we've become so self-condemnatory, we've already cited we're, our, our sins are too great, our failures are too great, we're not worth it, and so we don't even bother. He says, listen, you need to see yourself with sober judgment. Watch this. In accordance to the faith that God has given to you. What does he mean by the faith? He means that is the fact that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sin. He not only forgives you of your sin, he gives you over time, if you know how to think it out, a new identity. You are my son. You are my daughter. Do you believe that? Well, you say, well, I did believe it when I was baptized, but I, I don't believe it anymore because you're not doing any work because you're intellectually lazy, that's why. And you don't really, you, you, you say you believe the word of God, but you don't really digest it. You don't give your life to it, okay? I don't give my life to it. But if you do, God says, I'm gonna treat you, you're like a priest, right? You're a priesthood of believers. And I want you to take the word of God, I want you to, begin to digest the mercies of God, and as that gets more a hold of your heart, now I'm going to give you the Spirit of God and the Word of God. I'm going to send you out into the world. And, 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 you, and, you, and you iron out one problem after another and say, what does it mean to be a Christian as a doctor? What does it mean to be a Christian as a lawyer? What does it mean to be a Christian as a school teacher, a mom, or a dad, or a neighbor, or a, 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 you know, whatever the case, a student? And you think it out one issue at a time. Isn't that beautiful? This is what the gospel says. This is what we're supposed to do. 
Last thing, this is Paul's big point here. I mean, the, the, the takeaway is, you, is, is, you know, what are you waiting for? You know, this is one of the four gift passages. Sermon for another time. But many of you know there are, there are four gift passages. And, and, but if you read carefully the words that we just read, verses whatever it is, uh, four through eight, he's not really focusing on the gifts, right? Prophecy, mercy, leading, giving, um, you know, a serving. If you read it, he says, if, if you're prophesying, then prophesy. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, then get to it. Be diligent, you know? I mean, what he's saying is, just do it, right? Maybe, maybe uh, uh, you know, Nike needs to give credit to the Apostle Paul, right? But that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I, I, here's my fear for you guys. Because you're not thinking out your faith an increasing number of you are spectators and you've been sitting on the bench so long in your Christian life letting someone else do the work for you, someone else play the game, so to speak, for you. You're still a Christian, but you have, in a sense, faked yourself out that you can actually even live by faith as a neighbor, that you can actually have integrity in your business, that you can actually be a, a husband or a wife or a mom and dad and do it in a way under the power of Jesus Christ in a way that's different than the people around you. You're not even sure you can do that anymore. So Paul is saying, listen, your life is your offering, number one. Sacrifice is still the heart of the Christian message, but it's, come, it's not a sacrifice to gain God's favor. It's a life given in response to God's favor. You've got to preach that message to yourself. Second, you need to think out your faith. Okay? You need to think out your faith. You need to figure, what are the implications? There's not a chapter and verse for everything. You've got to work it out. Right? That's the beauty of the Christian life. And then lastly, you need to get in the game. Okay? Because part of some of the ways that you and I, it's, it's, the Christian life is kind of need to know. You know when you start studying about marriage problems? When you're in one. That's okay. You know when you start studying about money problems? When you have them. That's not always bad. It's better if you do it the opposite way, okay? But the point is, it's need to know, right? You get in there with God's Spirit and His Word and you figure it out. Amen? Amen. Okay, now we're going to take communion. And let me just say something about it, okay? Living sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the table that we're taking, or I should say the, the elements, the, the, the bread and the wine, of course, represent his sacrifice. And that's the heart of the Christian faith. Let me say something about Jesus. For six hours, at least, he was a living sacrifice. They didn't take Jesus and bring him out behind the shed and, and, and do away with him. Could have done that. But that's not what, how he died. You know that. For six hours, he was a living sacrifice. Why did he do that? Well, he did that according to the New Testament. For the joy that was set before him, right? It didn't say he did it with a smile on his face. No, he didn't. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and the, of that act. But he did that because of his great love for you. Because he looked at you, he looked through time and he said, you are my son, you are my daughter, in who I am well pleased, and I'm going to give my life for you. And what I, this passage says, 
and what we're supposed to remember when we share the communion table here, if you're a Christian in this room this morning, is that God is inviting us to do the same thing. Not to die on a cross, but in gratitude to give our lives back to him. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you offer your whole life, that's what he's saying, on the altar. Trust me and allow me to do something through your life as you're transformed that can really bring life to this world. So let's think about that as we share this, pass out this cup and this bread. Just stay quiet. I encourage you to think, and then I'll take it with you in just a minute. Number one, the greatest motivation, okay, for doing what I'm talking about and what this passage is talking about is the contemplation of the mercies of God. That's where Paul starts. So maybe some of you in this seat, all you need to do in the next two minutes is try to think about God's love for you because you've lost hold of that. Christianity's become a going through the motions thing for you. And you've been walking, uh, you know, sort of in, 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 the, in the patterns of this world as a Christian. Think about God's mercy. Where do you need a God's love to capture your mind and heart in a way that it hasn't? And then think about this, the rest of us, right? Are you, is your faith activated? And if it isn't, why not? And where do you need to activate your faith specifically? Think about it, pray about it, and we'll share this table in just a minute. God, we thank you for these minutes. Be with us now as we um, take just a few minutes, Lord, to remember what it is that you have done for us, how you have given in Jesus Christ you gave all there was to give. You left nothing behind, Lord. You sacrificed yourself that we, Lord, might be um, changed through that, through that act of love. Change us, help us, um, Lord, we pray. As we think about this, um, what you've done for us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.